So take your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 18 today. Matthew chapter 18 is where we're going to anchor for the morning. Matthew chapter 18, the question of the day is right in front of you. How do I overcome the hurt brought to me by those I should be able to trust? We live in a culture that is marked by a significant cynicism and lack of trust. And there are a lot of reasons for it that I'm not going to touch this morning. (laughs) Um, But not the least of those reasons is because our ability to trust has been damaged. Today's question is anchored in that. When, uh, <laughs> how do you move forward when your truster has been broken? That's the heart of this question. I'm being hurt repeatedly by somebody who you should be able to trust certainly comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, I am not going to minimize anybody's hurt by listing out what hurt might look like. But the damage is real. It's deep. And every single one of us has experienced it. So how do I overcome the hurt that's been brought to me by those I should be able to trust? Well, you know what they say, right? Time heals all wounds. That is the most bogus statement ever. Let me, let me give you proof. By itself, you give a disease time, you're not better. If you go to the doctor and he begins these tests, he takes some MRIs, some CT scans, and what comes back is he finds this mass in your body somewhere. He looks at that mass and says, okay, that's not supposed to be there, and it's growing. You know what we should do? Give it time. Because time heals all wounds. Time heals nothing. What is going to bring you healing? Surgery. Surgery is. The aggressive, exacting cut of a scalpel to disrupt the cycle of what it is that's hurting you, to to remove a mass that's going to, left to itself, grow into this gross malignancy that is going to threaten your life, your livelihood, and leave a trail of destruction. We are called to do Surgery. Jesus commands it for those people who have been hurt. And he commands it in Matthew chapter 18. 
Now what I want to do is walk through most of the chapter. I'm going to have to jump over a few pieces, parts here and there. But, but, but what it does is it does a masterful job of laying out the issue at hand for us this morning. What we are missing in Matthew 18 is some of the immediate context of the discussion that happens between Jesus and the disciples just before Matthew 18 starts. You can see that in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke chapter 9. And this is what happens. Jesus stands before his disciples and he says, as plain as day... I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to die, and three days later, I'm gonna rise from the grave. And do you know how the disciples responded? Shotgun! It's exactly what they did. I wanna be the greatest in the kingdom. No, you can't be the greatest in the kingdom. Your family's a little sketchy, man. I mean, so, I wanna be the greatest in the kingdom. You can't be the greatest in the kingdom. You've denied him already. You've, you've done these things, and they start fighting amongst themselves about who's going to get the prize seat in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 18, it begins, at the time the disciples came to Jesus, and they said, so, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child, And he had him stand among them. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. So just a pointed out in verse 3 when Jesus says truly I tell you that doesn't mean that everything else he said before this has been a lie and now he's going to start telling the truth at that moment he says do not neglect this this is incredibly important do not overlook this you must pay attention to what I'm about to say and what he says is unless you experience a genuine change of heart you will never get it This little child comes and stands in their midst and and he uses that that little kid as as an object lesson. He says, all of you used to have a heart like this little boy. Real, no cynicism, authentic, no skepticism, trusting. Aren't little kids some of the most trusting little people in the world? And Jesus is like, you used to be like this. So very, so trusting, so intense, so longing for relationships with the adults that you should be able to trust, and so wanting, you just want to be near those people who you love, you just want to be in relationship with them, and now you don't. Now, now I tell you, I'm going to die, and you guys start fighting over the furniture in the house. I mean, there is something jaded in you, something has happened to your heart, and it's got to change, and it's got to go back to the way it used to be when you were just a a little kid. So what causes that problem? What causes that cynicism? Well, if you look at verse 6, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it'd be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses. For offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And if your eye causes you to fall away, well then gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hellfire. What causes the problem? What brings about this cynicism that, that leads the trust of a little child to turn into this jaded, cynical adult who has no intimate relationships because they don't trust anybody? What, what causes that to happen? The word that is used repeatedly in this passage is offenses. There are three different definitions for the word to offend. The first is to take personal hurt to something that, oh, I'm so offended, you would think that about me. I don't know how to define that one. There's, there's really no clear definition for that one other than my feelings are hurt. That's what it means to be offended. That's, that's one possible meaning. The second possible meaning is you have offended me. You have caused me to sin. And then in this passage... You have caused someone to stop believing. In our passage here in front of us in Matthew 18, 6 through 9, offend means to sin against a vulnerable one, a weak one, an open one, a trusting one, a little one, and you sin against them in such a way that their ability to trust is damaged or destroyed. Kids trust, their hearts aren't guarded. But that doesn't last forever, does it? So, foolish illustrations, but, but two that stand out. I have a tendency uh, to joke around with our young people here at Uniontown. That may surprise you, since I have a tendency to joke around with everyone here at Uniontown. I have found some of the greatest jokes to happen with our young people on Sunday morning when they're getting coffee at our coffee station. Because it's a real easy one for me. I just walk up like, you drinking coffee? Yeah, I'm drinking coffee. You keep drinking coffee, and you're going to lose your hair. Now, at first, they're like, oh. Then they still drink the coffee because they've put more sugar in it. So it's actually like coffee ice cream than it is coffee. But they still, they still continue to drink it. After a while, if I continue to tell that joke, they believe absolutely nothing that comes out of my mouth. Right? It's, it's, and this is the goofiest illustration, and I, I, it's corny, but it works. You walk up to somebody, you haven't seen them for a little while, and you're like, hey, how are you? And you stick your hand out, and they're like, oh, and they go to reach for the handshake, and you go, oh, gotcha. The dumbest thing ever, isn't it? But you do that to a little kid, and they're going to keep trying to grab that hand until they stop. Because why would they keep trying? They know what you're going to do. That's the picture of offense. You have broken their ability to trust. If those young people are going to have healthy intimacy in their lives, trust is necessary. Because without trust, there is no intimacy. And when intimacy is destroyed, healthy relationships just stop happening. And, and not the least of which, and this is where Jesus goes in this passage, not the least of which is your relationship with God. When, when, when your truster is broken, it doesn't just go horizontal. It works vertically as well. And if you can't trust people, then you're going to find it very difficult to trust God. So the ultimate danger in all of this is that that brokenness 
affects your ability to trust the only one who's trustworthy. Do you think any of us struggle with that ability to trust God because of the way we've been treated in life? Let, let, let me, and I've used this before. It works. You ready? A little, little activity. Everybody, loosen up a hand. You only need one. Ready? How many of you in this room know without a shadow of a doubt that God loves you? Raise your hand. Look around the room, everybody. Okay, you ready? Put your hands down. How many of you know in this room beyond a shadow of a doubt God likes you? Yeah, some of you know the questions. You're like, oh, I got this one. And the rest of you are like, does God like me? Offenses, harm, that, that heartache affects your intimacy and ability to grow in relationships with people who you need to be able to trust, not the least of which is God. So it is such a significant deal. These offenses are such a significant deal that, that, that Jesus commands significant response. To, to the offender, to the offender, we get to see a side of Jesus that you don't get to see every day. You do this to little, let me tell you what you, it would be better that you take the biggest stone you can find and tie it around your neck and jump off a bridge. That's Jesus saying that. To the offended, well, to the offended, what Jesus says is exactly what we are supposed to deal with today. He answers the question, how do I overcome hurt brought to me by those I should be able to trust? And I'll tell you now, out of the gate, he doesn't say, just get over it. He doesn't say that it's nothing. He calls it serious. And he tells us what to do. And some of it's actually quite unpleasant. But he commands us to take aggressive action. I'm, I'm going to jump for time's sake to, to verse 15. Really, just, just by passing over 10 to 14, it's the beautiful story of the 99 and the 1. And really, it, I believe in this passage, in this particular context, what Jesus is doing is saying, I want you to know that I care deeply even for the one who is offended that everybody else has written off. Okay, but, but you get to, to verse 15 and we get to see how Jesus has commanded us to take aggressive action. Let me start reading in verse 15. He says this, if your brother sins against you, then go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, then take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, then tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So, so that right there is a passage that we apply um, corporately as, a, as a, a local church to something that is called church discipline. But what, it's important. I think it's definitely applicable to church discipline, a thousand percent so. But I, I think it's really important that we understand that in this moment, he's talking about individual sin. If somebody sins against you, if you have had somebody offend 
you. Not in the, oh, that makes me feel bad. No, no. If you've had somebody cause you to sin, if you have had somebody affect your ability to trust, then what you do is you get all of your friends and you talk about it. No? No. You, you, you sit down and with coffee, go to coffee with your pastor. No, because I just told you your hair will fall out. Um, no, no, I'm not saying I won't go to coffee with you, but I'll tell you what my response is gonna be to you. They offended you, so when have you gone to talk to them about it? So so Jesus is very clear. You hold that person responsible. You go to that person alone. Listen, you were trusted by me, and you violated my trust. And if they right there repent and respond in humility, that's wonderful, and you offer forgiveness, that's fantastic. You have gained them back. You can begin to build the bridge of that relationship back into place. Just, just kind of by way of a little side comment. Nowhere does it say, okay, everything's perfect, so here, I was standing next to you watching a baseball game, and you punched me in the face. Okay, that was not cool. Oh, you know what, man, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. All right, cool, wanna go to a baseball game? Now that breaks out against all sound wisdom, right? So the relationship is definitely affected. There is still some level of, of growth back into the area of trust that must occur. But right out of the gate, there needs to be an individual one-on-one confrontation. But if they don't hear you, if they don't repent, then you take somebody else with you as you try to resolve it. They still won't hear you. And you would come to the assembly, the local church. And if they still don't hear you, then they would be put out of the church. Please understand, being put out of the church isn't so that you will live on the streets. Being put out of the church is so that the relationship with you will change with everybody in here, so that every single one of us knows that you are living in rebellion and we are not seeking to condemn you We are trying to see you reconciled to God. That's been done horribly in church history, just so you know. Church discipline is either never carried out or it's carried out with the intent to smear the name of the one that has been put out of the church. What church discipline is meant for is to see a brother or a sister reconciled to God. So, so here's, here's an amazing part. So, so Jesus is walking through this, and I want you to, to go to them alone, and if they don't hear you, bring somebody else. If they don't hear you, bring it to the larger body, and if they don't hear you, then that relationship is forever altered, forever changed. You treat them like an unbeliever, and you seek to see them reconciled to God, and all those things are going on. And what's amazing now, you gotta hold tight, because this is like the only time that I can remember that this may be true, but buckle up, Peter is actually tracking with Jesus, Peter actually hears what Jesus says, and in verse 21, he says, Lord, okay, all right, I hear you. How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Seven? So, so Jesus hasn't even mentioned the word forgiveness yet. 
He's mentioned all about the uh, confrontation and, 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 and seeking the, to bring the brother back, but he has never spoken about forgiveness. Peter brings it up, and when he brings it up, he does it in a typical Peter fashion. He's like, I know the answer. Listen, you guys just take note and watch this. Hey, hey, Jesus, what? How many times should I forgive him? I am so holy. Seven? Now, seven ain't nothing. It's, I was thinking about this. If you have, uh, not that we have this, <laughs> If you have a child who likes candy so much that they have a sincere and significant temptation to steal everybody else's candy in the house, and that individual has found your stash not once, twice, three times, no, but seven times that day, by the seventh time, is it in your heart to be like, I forgive you? No. It's, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. Had something to do with milk duds and how many can I fit in your mouth, but um, <laughs> I wouldn't have said that. But you're not thinking, ooh, yeah, I get to forgive a seventh time. So Peter is not throwing a small number. I'm supposed to forgive them seven times? And Jesus says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. Don't count. The obligation to forgive is unending. There's no expiration. How do I overcome the hurt brought to me by those I should be able to trust? I, I just let it go, so I'm good. No. Um, I'm pretty sure Jesus said before, the thing that causes offense in your life, you're supposed to treat it like a bad eyeball and pluck your eyeball out. Letting it go isn't the same as plucking your eyeball out. But you know, Frank, um, I think, I think I forgave that person. I, th I think I did. I, I think I forgave them. If you did, then Jesus is about to show you what you did. Because Jesus is very gracious to us, and he gives us a clear parable to help us understand what forgiveness is. And he says, when I say forgive, this is what I mean. Look at starting in verse uh, 23. <clears throat> Jesus says, for this reason... The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So, so when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So the very first thing that has to happen in forgiveness is math. I mean, I have some math people I need to forgive for sure, but math, accounting, an audit, an assessment. See, what the king is doing is he is looking over his books and he's bringing into um, balance his books so he has got to deal with those people who owe him money, who have outstanding accounts. And so he looks, he assesses, he, he gives account and he does an audit and he says, okay, this man owes me 10,000 talents. So I need to understand what he owes me. So, so when it comes to forgiveness, <laughs> you know this moms and dads, when it comes to forgiveness, you can't say, okay, little Johnny's gonna offer forgiveness. I forgive you for what? Everything. I'm sorry for what? Everything. If you're sorry for everything, you know what you're sorry for? Nothing. And so if you were to approach somebody and to offer forgiveness for everything, well, then you're really not forgiving them of anything. It's not pleasant. 
but it's necessary that you sit down and know what you are forgiving somebody for. You know how what they did affected you. You you can't claim to have offered forgiveness if you haven't offered it for something specific. You've got to do the math. So, So what did they do to you? How did it affect you? What are you missing now as a result? What was taken from you? You, You've got to do that assessment process in order for it to be real, true, genuine forgiveness. Jesus continues, verse 24, he says, when he began to settle the accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. The, The second step in true biblical forgiveness, the first is assessment, the second is confrontation. By confrontation, I don't mean jacking them up against a wall. I don't mean seeking revenge. So the king brings this fella in and he speaks with the man and he says, this, 10,000 talents, this is what you owe me. That individual conversation with the one who you should be able to trust but has hurt you, that individual conversation must happen. It is a non-negotiable I don't think it's necessary in every situation. I think Jesus says if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. Doesn't he? Oh, but you don't. uh, Okay. So you get to edit and correct the words of Jesus. It's a command. I'm not saying it's a pleasant one. But it's a command. So you choose if you obey or disobey it. And go to the person who violated my trust, whether that be aggressively or passively. I tell them what they did. I tell them how it affected me. And as I'm telling them, it's not that I'm holding them responsible for my sin and my reactions. I am holding them responsible for theirs. And in that moment, what occurs next is the forgiveness. Verse 25, since he did not have the money. So this servant comes. uh, Let me, uh, yeah, I'll throw this in there. 10,000 talents. Uh, It's not one of those biblical um, measurements that were like, oh, that must be like a couple hundred bucks. A talent is a 20 years wage. 10,000 talents means this guy owed the king 20,000 years of wages. It was no small amount. So when the king brings him into his presence and demands that he pays what is owed, he demands that the debt is, is restored. Verse 25, the man did not have the money to pay it back. So his master, the king, commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. And at that time, the servant fell face down before him and said, oh, just be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, that is a bunch of hogwash. This dude, if he's 20,000 years of labor in debt, 
doesn't seem to have a workable business plan to get out of debt at any time soon. So for him to claim to the king, I will pay you everything, is false. And yet the king says this in verse 27, the master of that servant had compassion. He released him. And he forgave him the loan. The king had every right to hold this man. He had every right to hold this man's family. But what the king did was he offered a forgiveness that was completely undeserved. Well, what if, what if I sit down and I do the assessment and I know what, how it's affected me, and then I go one-on-one and I confront this person and, and they minimize it, they blow it off, they, they treat it like it's nothing. Hey, listen, it, it doesn't matter. If it happened, it happened. And what you're doing is forgiving them. And what you're saying is, I forgive you, that forgiveness is here whether you want it or not. In that moment, God requires me to be like him. So when Jesus was on the cross, he looked before him at all the people who were at the foot of his cross, many mocking, spitting, gambling for his clothes, and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Was that genuine or was that just, you know, he was just throwing that off? It was as genuine as it gets. Did they receive his forgiveness? Many of them know. But that offer of forgiveness was there, and so their response was on them. So if I've assessed and I confront and I offer forgiveness, then I can walk away from that conversation knowing that I have pleased God. And that's surgery. Time heals no wounds by itself. But after surgery... How do you feel after surgery? Don't lie. How do you feel after surgery? Horrible. I don't know of a single person who's like, oh, yes, it's like a good night's sleep. I mean, I've got 42 stitches here. It's feeling great. Look what I can do. You feel terrible. You feel groggy. You feel beaten up. It hurts like crazy. And then even as you're healing and time is being given and you're moving down the road, then it's like, okay, I'm starting to feel better. And then you just move one way and it's like, oh! Surprising, but it pops up on you every once in a while, doesn't it? Do you give that recovery time? Baby steps? little bit of exercise here and there, get yourself back into shape. Now you still have the scar, but there's growth. The walk through the forgiveness process is to get to the place where there's growth. Ultimately, to get to the place where you can start trusting in all those intimate and personal relationships all over again. And that starts with your willingness to do what is difficult. Your willingness to do it because it's commanded. And really it comes down to this. Your willingness to do it because you trust that God knows how to deal with your heartache even more than you do. I don't think, Frank, 
don't think I can forgive them for that. Um, I get that. Personally. Get that. So does Jesus. And he knew full well that our response would be that. Which is why he gave us this story. I'm going to go back to verse 23 and tell the story from the beginning and read it all the way to the end. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So when he began to settle accounts, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought before him. Now, since he didn't have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him. And he said, be patient with me, and, and I'll pay you everything. And the master of that servant had compassion, released him, forgave him the loan. That same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. If 10,000 talents in our culture today is 20 years labor, call that, give or take a few, $12 billion. The hundred denarii doing the same math, about 250 bucks. That servant who was just forgiven $12 billion went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him about 250 bucks. He grabbed him, he started choking him, and he said, you pay me what you owe! At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, no, be patient with me, I will pay you back, but..." He wasn't willing. Instead, he went and he threw into prison until he could pay what was owed. The other servants, they saw what had taken place and they were deeply distressed and they went and reported to their master everything that had happened. So after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, $12 billion, because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant who owed you 250 bucks? Like I had mercy on you? Because the king was angry, he handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. I, I, don't, I don't think I can forgive him of that. Friend, in this story, you are pictured. You are not the king. You are the one who in Jesus Christ has been forgiven an insurmountable debt. 
12 billion dollars. You are the one who has received that forgiveness based on nothing that you have done because you couldn't possibly pay that debt back. You're the one who went and put the stranglehold on the person who owes you the smaller debt, 250 bucks. Jesus says, I know. 250 bucks isn't nothing. But in light of the immeasurable crimes that Jesus has forgiven me of, it doesn't seem like so much. On the cross, Jesus paid for every sin you committed. So what he says, it's therefore unthinkable and unacceptable that you would withhold forgiveness. It's not okay. It's not easy. But Jesus said it was necessary. So who has come to mind this morning? Is it somebody maybe you haven't thought of for five, ten years? Maybe it's that person you think of every time the word forgiven is mentioned. Who is it that came to mind this morning? Who is it that you need to forgive? In forgiveness, there is freedom. In forgiveness, there is healing from the hurt, particularly the hurt that is brought to you by those who you should be able to trust. To refuse forgiveness is just disobedience. What will you do with Jesus' command this morning? Father, I am thank you for your word. I thank you for the hard parts of your word. Father, I thank you that I, I, in Jesus I have experienced true forgiveness. Now, Lord, I pray for our folks here. I pray that you would give them peace, and healing. Lord, my fear is that in talking about their responsibility to forgive, that they may not feel like I entered into their hurt with them, so God, help them to know I get it, I understand, and more so, you do. God, they need healing, they need hope, and that only comes through what you command them to do. You've told them to forgive, so as insurmountable as it may be, give them strength. Lord, may hearts yield to you and your call on their life this morning. Amen. <laughs>